I'm Jason Mitchell, Head of Responsible Investment Research at Man Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, and I hope everyone is staying well. So I often get asked about which podcast episode is my favorite of all time. But honestly, it's a near impossible exercise. There are just too many great guests and too many profound conversations. But here is one of my favorites. Why? Because perhaps more than any other episode, it fills a glaring blind spot for me. Which is to say that it gets closer to the underlying science of climate change and the risk to the Earth system. In fact, this episode has so many layers and implications to it that it's been sitting in my mind long after I recorded it. The first layer is about the scientific development of models to understand Earth as a system and its behavior. The second, frankly, is a sobering narrative, a sequence really, about a potential collapse of the Earth system or one of its subsystems. I mean, imagine that. And the third layer is humanistic. It's the story of a scientist whose work has expanded from the scientific realm to the sociological, behavioral, technological, and policy spheres. So it's great to have Professor Tim Lenton on the podcast. We discuss what's at stake when we talk about planetary boundaries, early warning systems, and climate tipping points. How the supporting science and empirical evidence have expanded over the last decade to support this, and why Gaia 2.0 represents a powerful framework to reinforce global sustainability. Tim is Professor of Climate Change and Earth System Science at the University of Exeter and Director of the Global Systems Institute. His books include Revolutions That Made the Earth and Earth System Science, a very short introduction. Tim's current focus is on understanding key events in the coupled evolution of life and the planet and on early warning of climate tipping points. He and his team are developing an evolutionary model of the marine system. Tim is a fellow of the Linnaean Society and a fellow of the Geological Society. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Tim Lenton. It's great to have you here and thank you for taking the time today. Thanks, Jason. Looking forward to chatting together. (laughs) Excellent. So, Tim, I've really been looking forward to this conversation, but let's start with some scene setting. What are climate tipping points? Can you describe their fundamental properties and how do feedback mechanisms amplify or counteract the effects of climate change? So a tipping point in any complex system, Jason, is where a small change makes a big difference in the outcome for that system. And in the climate we're talking about small changes in say global warming causing big changes in parts of the climate system. And I've kind of listed a a bunch of bits of the climate system that we call tipping elements that could pass a tipping point at different levels of global warming. And in every case, there's a key role for feedback loops, especially what we would call amplifying feedback. So a tipping point can happen. You can get a a large response from a small change when you have really strong amplifying feedback within a part of the climate system in this case. So that means that small change in uh, forcing, we would call it, provokes a response within that system that amplifies the initial effects of that change in forcing 
And the whole thing is so strong, the amplification, that it's sort of self-propelling. You could take the global warming, uh, the forcing away, and the change might just keep unfolding by itself. Uh, so an example of that, to make it a bit more concrete, would be the Greenland ice sheet. Um, as we warm it up and we cause net melt of the ice sheet, the, out the top altitude surface of the ice sheet drops um, in height, and that puts it into warmer air, which tends to make it melt more, which lowers the altitude further and so on. And that amplifying feedback is strong enough to get to this self-propelling situation where it can just cause the whole ice sheet to collapse at some point. Are tipping points artifacts of climate models or the real Earth system? They're definitely part of the real Earth system because we now have quite extraordinary records of Earth history, both recent and distant history, where we see instances of tipping points. And a classic example is during the last ice age, there are over 20 abrupt climate change events that affect, well, particularly the North Atlantic region, but the whole Northern Hemisphere and with repercussions in the Southern Hemisphere. So these are warmings of, in the North Atlantic region, the order of eight or 10 degrees centigrade in the order of one or two decades. So really rapid climate change that's uh, yeah persistent as well. And later on, there's also abrupt cooling events before then some thousand or so years later, you get another abrupt warming and so on. So that's one classic case. And there are others where we've seen abrupt climate changes and tipping points in the Earth system in the past. And that was without us hitting the climate system hard with global warming which just uh, is the thing now that's got raising the risk of provoking uh, tipping points in the near future. Hmm. Yeah, I want to explore this abrupt change when we talk a little bit later about climate modeling. But what's the relationship between your early work on planetary boundaries and tipping points? How, how do we go about establishing or even calibrating a safe planetary boundary variable <laughs> if it doesn't necessarily have an obvious tipping point? That's a great question. So I, the thing I worked on first um, of the two was tipping points in the sense that with my friend John Schalhuber, we were kind of coming up with this concept of climate tipping points and trying to list them in the early 2000s and through the mid 2000s. And then we'd kind of got a starting map and list of climate tipping points that made it clear that for the planetary boundary of climate, you could begin to define a level of warming beyond which you would be risking lots of these tipping points to make a clear definition of that planetary boundary. But then I think it was 2007 that my friend Johan Rockström invited us to the original workshop where we started to map out a broader set of planetary boundaries for other variables like nutrients and loss of biodiversity and water and so on. And so I kind of came to that meeting and to the original concept of planetary boundaries with some specific examples of tipping points, not just for climate, but for some of the other boundaries. I, I actually introduced the idea that for adding nutrients to the land that ultimately wash off into the ocean, there is an eventual tipping point where that risks tipping uh, what we call the deoxygenation of the oceans, which would be a major catastrophic tipping point. So for various planetary boundaries that we were drawing up on the big list or dial of those, we 
we could bring evidence of tipping points as a clear rationale for setting a boundary safely before you got to that level. But for other planetary boundaries, it's not so clear that there are big scale tipping points that you can define the boundary from. In that case, we have to come up with other rationale and it's a little bit murkier or more uncertain, you might say, how how to set a boundary. But that's just the nature of a kind of complex Earth system. Some bits of it have these tipping point responses, others don't. I want to actually touch on the precautionary principle. The notion of the precautionary principle allows for the adoption of precautionary measures when scientific evidence is uncertain and the stakes are high, as, as we're now talking about when it comes to climate. What is the precautionary principle for climate tipping points? How should we be behaving given how high the stakes are? Well, I think we should be doing everything in our power to limit the risk from crossing climate tipping points because they can be both abrupt and irreversible. And they pose, in the worst case scenario, a kind of existential risk. I mean, a risk to the stability of our civilizations and societies going forwards. So that's a strong argument for doing everything we can to limit global warming as close as we can to about one and a half degrees centigrade above pre-industrial. We're probably going to miss that target now and overshoot somewhat. But yes, the fact that every 0.1 degrees centigrade of global warming above one and a half degrees seems to markedly increase the risk of some major climate tipping points is is a compelling reason for the most decisive and urgent action to accelerate decarbonizing the global economy, as we call it, but basically stopping fossil fuel burning completely globally and also stopping net land use emissions of greenhouse gases as well. It's interesting. Yeah, I tend to kind of look at these podcasts through this sort of the lens of one central question, which is what's at stake? And clearly there's mm-hmm. a tremendous amount at stake. What does that mean in terms of our risk management protocol? Is it just wrong? And if so, how do we improve it? <laughs> well, I think we have approached the climate problem the wrong way and on several fronts. I think the climate science community have got to put their hands up partly on that, as well as the broader policy community. The first thing was that we weren't, in my view, really treating climate change as a risk management problem for a long time. I think that message has got through now and we have realised it's like the ultimate risk management problem and you have to take a risk approach. You have to just embrace and deal with the uncertainty and really consider the the likelihood of of damaging events, how damaging are they going to be, how many people are exposed to those damages and how how vulnerable are people to the damages they're exposed to. We're starting to get there on that front, but frankly, we've got a lot of work to do still on mapping out the risks from the climate tipping points as well as other climate damages. But I suppose now we've got hopefully into the right headspace with the problem, you don't have to do exhaustive work to see how potentially big the risks are, at which point any sane risk manager would be kind of adopting a response equivalent to what we might think about colloquially as taking out a very strong insurance policy or in a, against um, you know climate change as a major risk. Or in another metaphor, the way I, I would think of it is 
if you're a road cyclist and you're used to road cycling, that you're going down a mountainside that you've never been down before on a winding road in some trees, and you have absolutely no idea as you're coming towards a corner how sharp or long that corner is, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to apply the brakes pretty hard and go pretty cautiously unless you've got to come some kind of suicide pact. And that's the kind of response that the whole climate risk and climate tipping point risk ought to be eliciting and maybe is beginning to now. Let's hope. You co-authored a recent paper in February this year that I found really interesting. It was titled, Many Risky Feedback Loops Amplify the Need for Climate Action, which publishes an expanded list of feedback loops that include 20 physical feedback loops and 21 biological feedback loops. It builds on that original list in your highly cited 2008 Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences paper that was obviously very well circulated. What does the history of revisions say about the improvements to the way we model feedback loops and understand the Earth's climate system? Well, what we've seen over time is the more we study the Earth system, the more feedback loops we discover and find we need to try and quantify. And this recent paper is kind of an example of that. Now, the feedback loops don't all have to be of the amplifying kind. They could be of the damping kind, and that could be good news. Um, But unfortunately, when we revise the list, we have a habit of discovering slightly more of the amplifying feedbacks that could be a cause of trouble than the damping feedbacks that could um, reduce trouble. And we also know that when you have a system like the Earth's climate, which we've known, frankly, since the 1980s, is in a state of net amplifying feedback. If you just add a little bit more amplification when you've already got a fairly strong amplifier, the results are kind of a disproportionate extra response. It's like the case in in an electrical circuit or like the, the case of feedback that we know when you put the microphone too close to the speaker. Yeah, as I've said, what we've known for decades is, in fact, were it not for any feedbacks in the climate system, if we doubled the carbon dioxide level in the atmosphere, that key greenhouse gas, we'd only expect about 1.2 degrees of global warming. But what our models tell us is uh, at the moment, because there's amplifying feedback in the system, we expect at least three degrees of warming if we double CO2 levels in the short term, that amount of warming, and in the longer term, maybe up to six degrees C of global warming. So that tells you we've already got a strong amplifier in place. And if we start discovering over time further, little, even little amplifiers that add on to that strong amplification, we've really got trouble. What are some of the more problematic new feedback loops that you've added in over the last 15 years that particularly worry you? I'd say the most striking thing that that climate scientists have, I say, quietly discovered in the last 15 years, because I don't think this has hit the general consciousness, is the space missions, satellite missions, to look more carefully at the clouds, particularly over the oceans and over the southern ocean, made a crucial discovery that the clouds, especially over the Southern Ocean, contain fewer ice crystals than we thought they did. So clouds could be made up of tiny water droplets or tiny ice crystals. 
In our models, we were assuming these Southern Ocean clouds were mostly ice crystals. And this was, in the models, crucial to a strong damping feedback, in fact, which would be as you warm the world up and warm the clouds up, that ice crystals would turn into water droplets. And that affects the reflectivity of the clouds from space. It actually makes them more reflective. So it's like a damping feedback on climate change. At least it would be if it were true that the clouds were full of ice crystals. Unfortunately, a satellite mission has told us they weren't. They, there was a lot less ice crystals and a lot more water droplets already in the clouds. And what that meant was our models were wrong. And they were wrong in a way that they had a strong damping feedback that shouldn't be there or could switch off under a modest amount of warming, leaving us just with all the other amplifying feedbacks. And that particular discovery is crucial to the question of how much warmer it's going to get and the possibility that as we warm things up a little bit, we could kind of knock out this crucial damping feedback from clouds and just be left with the other amplifying feedbacks. And suddenly, when we recalibrate our models, instead of them giving, say, a two or three degrees C warming, they could jump to giving a five or six degrees C warming when that feedback uh, sort of switches off. That's quite frightening. Does that mean it's an error in our climate models or a weakening in the warm to cold vertical air currents? It basically is basically the process of science. It means, at least for some of our models, we had a flawed assumption about, in this case, the nature of the kind of physical state of some of the clouds. But in the spirit of science, we go out and we try to observe better the way the world is and then we try to make our models better accordingly and unfortunately in this case we found out something that for several of the models suddenly made them their climate sensitivity as it's called much higher it's not necessarily the only thing we could discover i mean we also make discoveries that go in the other direction sometimes so this is not the last word but it's just the way we need to think about this is perhaps all the more reason to keep trying to understand the climate system better and keep improving our models with the help of improved observation. That's the process of science, basically. One of the interesting features that I mentioned of this paper is the inclusion of biological feedback mechanisms. Why do you think the science community has been relatively slow to examine the impact of biological feedback loops like forest dieback, permafrost thawing, and loss of soil carbon in climate models? There's a sort of history to how a climate model came about in the first place. They were really born out of weather forecasting models, which are, of course, concerned principally with the physics of the weather and the water cycle. And on the short timescales of the weather, okay, it turns out you actually need some kind of decent representation of the land surface and its physical properties, like the fact that the trees return water to the atmosphere through opening the holes, the stomata in their leaves and so on. But what you didn't need to do in a weather forecast model was get into all the detail of the carbon cycle, the cycling of methane, nitrous oxide, other greenhouse gases by biology. So the fact that a climate model has its heritage in a weather forecast model, and what happened was basically bits got added on to the atmosphere, like the ocean, and then sorting out bits of land surface. 
meant that we've the last thing we've kind of got to are the biosphere and its longer time scale processes and responses, but also and also on a different front, ice sheets, which are a really slow responding system. So yeah, it's a sort of part historical accident that we've been slow to get round to sort of properly looking at the biological feedbacks in the system. Although my great hero, Jim Lovelock, of the Gaia hypothesis fame, has been rightly telling us since the 1970s, if not before, that we really needed to be thinking about biological feedbacks in the system as crucial. It's interesting. I even draw a parallel to the investment community where I find that investors tend to look very discreetly at climate apart from biodiversity issues. But let's hope that that becomes more closely examined together. Precisely, Jason. But I think that investors like everybody else seek some kind of continuity and simplicity. The ones I talk to don't want to have to have a whole separate accounting system for biodiversity. If they've started worrying about carbon and climate, they want a way of bringing biology into the same framework, not having to yet have a second and a third framework and so on. Hmm. I was going to ask, how did these biological feedback loops compare to the big physical systems like ocean currents or a decline in sea ice? And, and also, if physical and biological feedback loops are increasingly coupled in climate models, as we've just talked about, how do we couple them in real world decision making? Oh, yes. Um, well, on the first question, it depends what you're looking at, frankly, relative importance of the biological versus the physical and chemical feedbacks. But as you've hinted, really, we start to see it as a coupled system. So a crucial biological feedback that's a good one is the fact that of all the CO2 we emit to the atmosphere each year, a big chunk of it goes back into the land biosphere, about just over a quarter typically. And then another quarter goes into the ocean through a mixture of sort of physics, chemistry and biology, frankly. So the land sink is very much a biological one, and the ocean one is a part biological one. And without those damping feedbacks, the whole climate problem would be twice as bad already. So in that sense, the biosphere, in the spirit of the Gaia hypothesis, has been partly our saviour um, <laughs> up to now, overall reducing change in the carbon cycle and hence the amount of climate change we're experiencing. Of course, the big worries are and that as we go forwards, there is evidence that what has been a kind of overall damping feedback from the biosphere can weaken and ultimately potentially become an amplifying one. What, what more does the paper reveal about the relationship between feedback loops and tipping points? You've warned about the risk of cascading tipping points, where one tipping point triggers another. How has the science and empirical evidence around this cascading effect expanded over the last decade to point to demonstrable causal interactions? And where, in your mind, are the most obvious interactions of this? Is it, for instance, the ice-ocean albedo feedback? Well, in there's a lot to talk about there. So let me answer the key question about the risk of cascading feedbacks or tipping points. So first, I need to say that feedbacks can be positive, amplifying or damping, negative in mathematical language. And of the feedbacks that are amplifying, it's only a subset that can get strong enough to cause a true tipping point where the amplification is so strong that you put one unit of change into the system you go around the feedback loop and you get at least an additional unit of change 
uh, that goes around the loop again, gives you another unit and so on, and that's a self-propelling, really strong amplifying feedback. But yeah, once we've established that some feedbacks can get that strong, at least within bits of the climate, and we're going to call those uh, then potential climate tipping points, then it turns out that when you tip a bit of the climate system, like you can tip the loss of the Greenland ice sheet or the West Antarctic ice sheet, or a major change in the Atlantic overturning circulation of the ocean, well, that has consequences for other what I call tipping elements that have tipping points in the climate system. And sometimes it's such that tipping one thing makes tipping another more likely. And in the worst case, tipping one thing might make tipping another inevitable. And in the last decade or so, we begin to piece together from a mixture of models, earth history, and even observations, some worrying signs that there are these possible cascades of tipping one thing makes tipping another more likely, if not inevitable. And one of the cascades I could illustrate is starts potentially in the Arctic, where we're seeing uh, the whole region warming two or three times or four times faster than the global average, because you're replacing a very reflective white sea ice surface uh, that's melting away with a very dark ocean surface that absorbs a lot more heat. Well, that Arctic warming also means a kind of Arctic moistening. It means it rains and snows more there, which is adding fresh water to the North Atlantic. It also means that amplified Arctic warming, that the Greenland ice sheet is melting at an accelerating rate. And that's also a source of fresh meltwater into the North Atlantic Ocean. And adding fresh water to the North Atlantic is a problem because it affects it slows down and could ultimately collapse the great overturning circulation of the Atlantic Ocean, which depends on um, some waters that are coming northwards at the surface into the seas either side of Greenland. It depends on them getting those waters at the surface getting cold enough, but also salty enough and therefore dense enough to sink from the top of the ocean to the bottom on either side of Greenland. If you add fresh water into the surface waters of the ocean there, you make the water less dense, less prone to sinking. And that's why you could break this fantastic, the important circulation of the Atlantic Ocean, the overturning circulation. But that has its own knock-on consequences, because we know that it in its normal state is bringing a huge amount of heat across the equator from the southern hemisphere to the northern hemisphere, and it's dragging the rainfall band that's all the way around the tropics of the planet northwards. And that's effectively saying that it's key to the monsoons in West Africa, South America, India, around the planet. So if you were to tip in this cascade a weakening or a collapse of the Atlantic overturning circulation, it would potentially seriously disrupt or tip monsoons in West Africa, India, and we're still trying to work out what it would do to the Amazon. And then finally, by breaking this ocean circulation, you would leave heat behind in the Southern Hemisphere and the Southern Ocean, and heat Heating of the water there is the crucial risk for the West Antarctic ice sheet and parts of the East Antarctic ice sheet. So you could increase the likelihood of tipping those ice sheets, leading to many meters of sea level rise. Yeah, I don't want to sound provocative, but it sounds like climate tipping points have essentially provided you a narrative about the sequence of a potential collapse of the Earth climate system or at least one of its subsystems. Yeah, it's kind of presenting a potential narrative of how you would basically switch the climate into a recognizably different state. If anyone is present hundreds or thousands of years down the line to look back on this, 
they would probably see that as some kind of global tipping point. And the further you went into the future, the more the evidence would sort of get blurred and the more it would just look like a global tipping point. But what I've spelt out is like the cascade that could be big enough to ultimately be kind of world changing. Hmm. Let's go back to the climate modeling line of thought. Can you talk about the climate modeling framework you're using to integrate tipping points? And how does that compare to traditional IPCC climate models, which tend to be equilibrium climate sensitivity or ECS driven? Well, I, you know, they do, but I've also worked with those models and I'm actually in my group, you know, looking in those models to understand where do they show abrupt shifts and tipping points, because they do show them increasingly. So there's a lot of positives to be said about the models, although they're always going to need improvement. But I wanted to also complement the sort of complex climate modelling approach with what could we learn about the possibility of tipping points directly from data. And to do that, we've been using something that's been well known for a while by mathematicians, but maybe not originally by climate folk, which is that in general, when a system is approaching a tipping point, it gives some telltale early warning signals. Um, And they're a bit counterintuitive. Before you get to a tipping point where a small change makes a really big difference to a system, that system will actually become more sluggish and slow down in its ability to recover from little perturbations that it might be getting all the time. So that phenomenon, which gets called critical slowing down, is a telltale sign that actually a tipping point might be approaching. What is actually happening in practice is you're seeing what now be called loss of resilience of a system, but we could also describe as the damping feedbacks that maintain stability in a system are getting weaker, and that's why a system will recover more slowly from little shocks before it hits the point where amplifying feedbacks take over and you get a really big tipping point change. Anyway, long story short, my group spent 10 or 15 years showing that these early warning signals can really exist for climate systems. They were there in Earth's past before past about climate changes, and they're there in models. When you force a model towards a tipping point, you see the early warning signals beforehand. And now my group and others have started showing in real observational data that the classic early warning signals of loss of stability are present in bits of climate system that we think have the potential to exhibit a tipping point, including the Amazon rainforest, the Great Atlantic Overturning Circulation I talked about, and also, for example, part of the Greenland ice sheet. Yeah, it's such an interesting part of this discussion. I mean, I was wondering... What are the early warning systems for these tipping points? How are we monitoring them under even the Gaia 2.0 model? How do we know that? How do we know when we're there? And, and I'm wondering, can you put early warning systems into context, maybe using a potential collapse of the Atlantic meridional overturning circulation per your 2014 paper? Sure. So that great overturning circulation, as we've heard, is the big one to worry, be worried about. We know it's tipped in the past. We know it could be at risk of tipping in the future. It's also something that sciences and governments are spending a lot of money and effort trying to monitor. And that includes major investments in setting up kind of east to west transects, they're called, but monitoring arrays at different latitudes in the Atlantic. The first one that got invested in is at about 26 degrees north, so in kind of the boundary of the tropics and the subtropics. 
but more recently monitoring has been put in in, in arrays going sort of west-east across part of the North Atlantic and also towards the southern boundary of the Atlantic, kind of like the bottom of Africa across to South America. And what we had already worked out by kind of studying model worlds in back and published back in 2014 was that you could get much better early warning signals of Atlantic overturning circulation tipping point at some latitudes of the ocean than others. In fact, the best signals would be up at the northern high latitudes and at the southern boundary of the Atlantic. So it's by chance more than by design, but happily, um, some of the more recent investment in actual monitoring is in in useful places, or the most, or arguably the most useful places to pick up the early warning signals um, of a possible tipping point ahead. And in a broader way to think about this, we crucially need to increase our sensing capacity of our life support system, the Earth system or Gaia. And clearly one kind of sensing capacity is sensing the possibility that bits of the system could head towards damaging tipping points. And this is just a specific example of how we can do that for a part of the ocean. But systematically, we can also do that for the land biosphere. And we're increasingly in my group using the satellite remote sensing data that's already available to do a kind of global, we would call it resilience sensing of the terrestrial biosphere, at least to see which bits might be losing stability. And that showed us, and we published last year, that it showed us that the Amazon rainforest had showed a really strong signal of stability loss over the last 20 years. So yeah, there's more to do, but it just shows us that there's information to be gleaned out there, right, by increasing our sensing capacity of our life support system. The IPCC's AR6 synthesis report, which came out last month, seems to recognize the gravity of tipping points. In fact, the report states that, quote, risks associated with large-scale singular events or tipping points such as ice sheet instability or ecosystem loss from tropical forests transition to high risk between 1.5 to 2.5 degrees Celsius and to very high risk between 2.5 to 4 degrees Celsius. How do you grade the IPCC's efforts in integrating tipping point effects like nonlinear change into their climate modeling frameworks? Well, I was really pleased to see what you just quoted appearing in the recent synthesis report. And I think it's making a nod to a study we published in September last year, 2022, where we systematically looked across about 230 published studies on tipping points and pulled all that information and data together to give an updated assessment of climate tipping point risks, which is pretty comparable to the statement that the IPCC came out with, although I'd probably be even more kind of uh, risky in my statement in the sense that I think things look really bad above two degrees C and that there's quite a lot of trouble lurking between one and a half and two degrees C. But to answer the broader question, we've got a history in these kind of broad assessments that myself and others participate in at IPCC of erring on the side of least drama, as Naomi Oreskes neatly put it. But we're starting to now stopped at doing that and give an honest risk assessment. And that includes a considerable change in the IPCC's assessment of tipping point risks over time. I mean, over the last 20 years, it's gone from a situation where 20 years ago, the IPCC would be saying there's only really a, a significant risk of climate tipping points at four or five degrees C of global warming to the quote you just gave, which is the risks are kicking up above 
one and a half degrees to global warming. So I think that's a, a welcome development in the sense of giving everybody on the planet, as well as the policymakers, a more salient and honest risk assessment. And I think as we carry on, I fear that we're just going to discover that these risks are even more real than we thought they were. You never know. We might have some positive news as we move ahead, but I think we're now in a better place in the overall assessment. We've got real, as it were, about tipping point risks. And what I'm hoping for is that there might be a special report on tipping points in the next what's called seventh assessment report cycle of IPCC. But that is far from clear. There's a lot of haggling politically over what should be the priority for special reports. But at least we can take some comfort that finally the kind of IPCC process is, is giving us, I think, a more accurate statement on these tipping point risks. Oh, that's good to hear. One of the fascinating aspects for me doing research for this podcast episode was trying to understand the arc of your work. And what I mean by that is that your focus on tipping points is widened from climate to include technological and policy tipping points. Did this expansion grow out of frustration of the constraints within the science community? Or was it a more organic growth in confidence around the application of tipping points in the realm of social and environmental justice as sort of a way to drive change in wider behaviors? A yeah, good question. It's hard to know sometimes why your own mind does the things it does. <laughs> but I think, I think for me, I'll, I would give the credit back to my original passion, which was to study Gaia, the Earth system, as a part living system. And all the work I did from, with Jim Lovelock from the early days, it made me acutely aware that we are biology and like all biology, sometimes small innovations that start in some seemingly nondescript or tiny bit of the biosphere can sometimes occasionally turn into large consequences thanks to feedbacks, networks, effects and the rest. So I was always kind of looking at us humans as just another species in Gaia and our technological innovations, as we've seen obviously in human history, can occasionally be world changing. I mean, Think of the domestication of crops and the agricultural revolution or the innovations that drove the industrial revolution. And of course, the reinforcing feedbacks that also made those things revolutions in the true sense of the world. They became abrupt and self-propelling, certainly the industrial revolution, just as is the modern growth regime, as economists call it, in the economy. So I was sensitised to all that. And so whilst it was... Uh, alarming to be, of course, discovering potential bad tipping points in the biosphere and the climate. Well, it was totally natural for me to also see the possibility for a tipping point in societies away from fossil fuel burning to renewables as a dominant source of power and also other possible tipping points towards what's globally called a more circular economy. And that these would have to stem originally from sort of quirky innovations that sort of nobody notices to begin with, but then gain their own momentum. As we've been going through the beginning of this new millennium since about the year 2000, I began to sort of see in the evidence that some things that have been around since I was a kid, like solar panels, um, electric vehicles, were coming they were really starting as innovations to become more cost competitive. They were starting to scale up. They were starting to demonstrate their own amplifying feedbacks. 
And that's why I was looking at the same time at these, what I'm now calling potential positive tipping points of abrupt social and technological change. And you're right, I was also in a little bit of despair at the way we were all considering our ability to do anything about the climate problem. Along with all the kind of political dithering that's been going on, we seem to have a completely linear view of how it would be to try and tackle a climate problem and also a, a kind of wrong economic view that it was always going to be a net cost to do anything about climate change, which is kind of a council of d- despair, frankly. Whereas I firmly believe that uh, now the evidence is clear that shifting abruptly to renewable power is a net saving in monetary terms and a, a net benefit for a huge number of reasons for societies worldwide. So yeah, I've, I've been motivated to from a mixture of directions to want to shine a bit more of a light on the possibility of strong amplifying feedbacks and tipping points of the good kind, accelerating changes that I feel normatively we need in society and technology. Gaia 2.0 seems to represent a grand theory that unifies your work around planetary boundaries, tipping points, and early warning systems. Where in your mind does receptivity for it stand? Particularly this argument that humans need to add some level of self-awareness to Earth's self-regulation. Well, I don't know whether too many people would contest that proposition, but I would have to say that the whole original notion of Gaia, of life playing an integral role in a self-regulating Earth system, has remained a kind of pariah subject among many scientists, just because of ways that Jim Lovelock and Lynn Margulis originally phrased the hypothesis in the early 1970s. They made it seem what scientists and philosophers would call teleological, as if they were suggesting that life was all purposively kind of reshaping the planet for itself. And that's left the academics, at least, largely ignoring Gaia. And I suspect they wouldn't be too keen in general on my use of the term Gaia 2.0 to try and encapsulate my thinking that, yes, as a self-aware and a collectively self-aware species, we could be finally the ones to bring a bit of teleology, a bit of self-aware, self-regulation into the system. So they would object to the name, but would they object to the concept? I don't think so, because we're all, you know, in the field effectively working on how on earth can we do something about climate change? And I think in the politics of this, as my late dear friend Bruno Latour put it, the fact that we're so vexed about climate change and we're talking about targets like one and a half or two degrees C, and desperately wanted to get action to meet them, tells us that we all instinctively almost recognise that we were living in a regulated earth system or climate system, and that it has been knocked out of whack, as Bruno would have put it. So we might object to the phrase, Gaia, and certainly some academics do, but actually, conceptually, I think we're all on board with the basic idea that we recognise we're acting collectively in a way that's messing up our own life support system. This is not a smart way to proceed. And therefore, we need to use our collective self-awareness to try and get to a better place, to sense where things are going wrong better and get better at correcting our mistakes. And if you're more optimistic like me, get to a place where we have a vision of a better future we want to work towards and we believe we can work with our feedback loops that we're creating and strengthening to propel change towards that desirable place. 
Well, what are examples of how this human self-awareness can manifest this ability, this agency? At least in theory, I would imagine carbon markets are a potential way into the Earth's system where we trade flows of CO2 in and out of the atmosphere. Obviously, there are a lot of critics, but how do you see markets playing a role here? And are there other ways aside from carbon systems like net zero strategies? There's certainly many ways that we could be bringing this up collective self-awareness to bear. I mean, I, I often think about it in myself and how my own actions would have I felt compelled to change them because of what I knew about the consequences of my own activities, like flying. So I, I managed not to fly for a long time, for example, um, also changed how I eat and things like that. But it's perhaps a one shouldn't overemphasize solely the individual action here because, as you rightly hint, it's about a mixture of the bottom-up individual changes we can make and the sort of top-down changes we can also make to try and stimulate change in the right direction. And on those more top-down mechanisms, well, we can indeed try to put a sensible price on the pollution, the carbon pollution that's causing the problem. What we would learn there is that you don't want the same carbon price in all parts of the economy. That's not the most effective way to create change. As the UK has beautifully proven, you only need a fairly modest price on carbon emissions in the power sector, electricity generation, basically, to fundamentally tip positive change. We've shut coal burning out of power generation in just the last 10 years with a modest carbon price. We'll need a lot higher price on carbon for cement making or steel manufacture for that to be the best lever. And more generally, I would say what recent history teaches us is it's more effective to incentivize the new green technologies. So to spend public money on everything from early research and development to introducing kind of green tariffs and other incentive schemes, that's generally as a role even more effective than punitively taxing the bad pollution, the CO2, but probably using both and is even is even the most effective approach when done in a smart way. So yeah, putting proper pricing into the marketplace helps, but also how public money is deployed can really help. And we see that with initiatives like the Inflation Reduction Act in the US and a big stimulus package there for green innovation and technology coming to scale. Well, great. So it's been fascinating to discuss what's at stake when we talk about planetary boundaries, early warning systems, and climate tipping points, how the supporting science and empirical evidence have expanded over the last decade, and why Gaia 2.0 represents a powerful framework to reinforce global sustainability. So I'd really like to thank you for your time and insights. I'm Jason Mitchell, Head of Responsible Investment Research at Man Group, here today with Tim Lenton, Professor of Climate Change and Earth System Science at the University of Exeter and Director of the Global Systems Institute. Many thanks for joining us on A Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you, Jason. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash ri-podcast.